Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're giving a chat about Charles Darwin, a monumentally important scientist who is most famous for, of course, proposing what is known today as the theory of evolution. Darwin's revolutionary idea was that the diversity of life, all the different species of animals and plants and, and whatever else that there are, they all came about through slow generational change due to something called natural selection. And as I say, this theory was well and truly revolutionary in every sense of the word. Um, this idea was enormously controversial in Darwin's time, uh, as, as you may know, uh, but it has been ultimately proven as correct. Evolution is what explains why and how life on Earth is the way that it is. Although, even today, there are those who still oppose Darwin's ideas, but then again, there are also people who believe that hair grows back thicker if you shaved it. I bloody wish, mate. I'd shave my head until you needed a machete for the regrowth, I'll tell you that. Anyway... Darwin uh, began to develop this theory, uh, his theory of evolution, after travelling around the world on uh, the ship HMS Beagle as a youngster in his early 20s, and then after that spent decades and decades refining his theory before its ultimate publication, and this publication would change the world forever. In Darwin's time, debate raged over the validity of, uh, of evolutionary biology and, and natural selection, but today it is a foundational aspect of our scientific understanding of life. Darwin was one of those people who came along and just completely changed the way that we understand the world, like Newton, episode 216, or Curie, episode 142, or Galileo, episodes 209, 210, or Einstein, uh, haven't haven't done one on him, whoops, haven't, uh, yeah, haven't been brave enough to tackle relativity one of these days. Anyway, Darwin, his story is a very important and a very interesting one too, and also also a very long one, one I've attempted to uh, cram into a single episode, but as has been uh, emerging as a little trend in the last few weeks, today's episode is going to be a bit of a long one. Uh, but before we begin, uh, thanks go to a lot of alert listeners today. Many, many people have written in uh, requesting Charles Darwin as a topic. Um, uh, Travis Weatherly, Craig, uh, Jimbles Natrombo, Lauren Treglon, Fabian Wiesner, Moritz Ebel, and he's back again. Here he is. It's Belgian Bart, everyone. Uh, Bart van Gelova. Uh, he he wrote in, congratu well, offering uh, reserved congratulations for not completely butchering his name. We'll see how I did this week. Uh, but thanks very much uh, to everyone, particularly Bart, a a commissioned officer in the half-ass history old guard. Anyway, as ever, of course, every week I say it, but it is certainly true this week. A lot to get across today. Um, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to keep up these extra large episodes, but I've made my bed and I'll lie in it. So here we go with the story of Charles Darwin. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 12th of February, 1809, to the English town of Shrewsbury in what is today the UK. And there... Young Charles Darwin was born as the fifth of, uh, of six children to Robert and Susanna Darwin, a, uh, a wealthy and quite progressive couple. Both, uh, both Darwin's grandfathers were abolitionists. Uh, his father was a dedicated free thinker. That, that is someone who encouraged, well, obviously, free thought, right? Not just blindly accepting things like religious dogma. And this had a very profound impact on young Charles growing up, of course. Um, 
Uh, not to mention that the, the fact that uh, one of Darwin's grandparents, one of his grandfathers, uh, Erasmus Darwin, he actually foreshadowed and seemingly anticipated the theory of evolution with some of his scientific work. So very clear to see that Darwin was, was raised by people who were ready to explore radical ideas. And, uh, and as I say, this had a, had a huge influence on him growing up, uh, particularly when it came to his education. But we'll get to all that. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about all that. Let's not get ahead, ahead of ourselves here. Darwin's childhood um, tragically saw the death of his mother when he was just eight years old, very sad. And uh, it wasn't long after that that he was sent off to boarding school for his education. Eventually, as a teenager, he aided his father with his dad's medical practice. Uh, Robert Darwin was a doctor. And then in, uh, in 1825, he headed to the prestigious University of Edinburgh Medical School to follow in his father's footsteps. The problem was, however, Darwin hated med school. Uh, he found the theoretical side of it boring beyond belief, and he found the practical side of it extremely harrowing. Apparently, Darwin would, Darwin would feel faint. He'd basically just keel over um, at the sight of blood, which, you know, might end up being a bit of an impediment to, to becoming a doctor. Uh, it wasn't the, the doctoring life was not for him. Instead, he found himself gravitating towards natural history, biology geology, botany, that sort of thing, uh, the study the study of the natural world. And while, while failing to become a doctor in Edinburgh, uh, he was exposed to some of the early ideas that had to do with what would become known as evolution. Uh, this wasn't the term that they used back then. Uh, it tended to be referred to by terms such as um, th- these concepts were referred to as the, uh, the transmutation of species and, and, and other terms like that. Anyway, he was, ex- uh, he was exposed to some of these early theories, um, like the one put forth by the French scientist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. Uh, the theory that, that uh, stated that offspring were capable of inheriting biological traits from their parents. Today, this is obviously widely accepted as scientific fact, but as we'll talk about, plenty of people back then in Darwin's time, they considered life to be immutable, to be unchanging, created in a, in a certain way, and never differing from it throughout the generations. So these evolutionary ideas, they've been around for a long time, but they lack widespread support due to a lack of empirical evidence and just the overriding assumption that they, that just wasn't how the world worked. So Darwin picking up these ideas and running with them completely changed the game. Although I will say we're decades away from it, but we'll, 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 we'll get to it in due course. In any case, Darwin he had read Lamarck. He had read his grandpa's thoughts on the matter. He was further exposed to all of these uh, evolutionary ideas while he was studying. And uh, the longer he stayed at university, the the more he became interested in the natural sciences. However, there was someone who was decidedly less interested in the natural sciences and uh, was thoroughly uninterested in Darwin, specifically studying them. His old man, Robert, who in 1828, realising Darwin wasn't going to make it as a doctor, pulled him out of Edinburgh and sent him to Cambridge to study to become a priest instead. Now, Darwin did uh, just about as well studying to become uh, a priest as he did to become a doctor. Uh, he found it extremely dull. He didn't like it at all. And instead, once again, gravitated back towards all the naturalists on campus. He got into things like horse riding and beetle collecting and uh, He did a lot better with his studies when he gave up on the idea of becoming a priest, I can tell you. After graduating from Cambridge in 1831, Darwin left university with his head full of ideas and theories about life and and the planet on which we lived and and a a huge hunger to go out and find out as much as he could about as much as he could. He was was extremely well read. It wasn't just uh, 
what we today call evolutionary biology. He'd read about geology and, and, and zoology and botany and all these other things. And now he wanted to get out and write books of his own. He was hungry to get out there, get stuck in the natural sciences, investigate and research and expand upon all these ideas that he'd been exposed to while studying. And evolutionary biology was just a part of that. It was something that he had a lifelong interest in. But as, as we'll sort of touch upon a little bit, Darwin, in his time, was known as a geologist and an entomologist and a botanist and all of these other areas that were related to his studies of, of life sciences and biology and, and evolution in particular. But this bloke was a lot more well-rounded when it came uh, when it came to scientific inquiry than you might think. And of course, not that he knew it at the time, but his career would ultimately change the course of scientific history forever, as we will see. Anyway, Darwin's career began shortly after he graduated. He was offered a berth on a two-year sea voyage around the world on a ship called the HMS Beagle. It was being sent off under the command of a 26-year-old captain named Robert Fitzroy with the stated mission to map the South American coastline. Now, Darwin, who was 22 at this stage, he would be coming along as a gentleman scientist, um, not really part of the main mission of the ship with its navigational and, and, and cartographical objectives, um, but uh, he was being sent off as, as someone who would be able to get some scientific investigation and research done in far-off locations across the world. Now, you might be wondering, well, why? I mean, what, what's, what's going on with this fellow? Why did Fitzroy bother lugging a, a scientist around the world with him when his expedition had, as I say, cartographical aims rather than scientific ones? Why would Fitzroy burden himself with this fresh-faced nerd right out of university who might just slow them down as he turned over rocks to look at exciting new types of beetle? Well, this is not a joke. This is the actual reason that Fitzroy wanted someone like Darwin to come along. Fitzroy was worried about getting lonely. The captain obviously couldn't go and fraternise with the crew, and uh, Fitzroy was staring down the barrel of some very lonely years at sea, um, and as he himself had a keen interest in science, he wanted someone of his social standing, or close to it anyway, Fitzroy was a proper actual aristocrat, but Darwin as a, as a gentleman was, uh, was close enough, um, he wanted someone with whom he could dine and converse, and um, specifically wanted someone young and someone who had a keen interest in science, someone who would use the voyage as an opportunity for research, as well as making sure Fitzroy himself didn't get well, quite literal cabin fever, right? Captain's cabin fever. So Darwin fitted this bill more or less perfectly, and as his family could afford the significant costs involved with sending a self-funded gentleman scientist around the world, despite his dad's misgivings about the whole thing, he got the berth. And with Darwin aboard, the Beagle set off from Plymouth on the 27th of December, 1831, planning, as I said, to make a two-year trip around the world. However, in reality, it would be five years, almost five years before Darwin would finally return home to Britain, as you'll see. The journey began with the Beagle sailing southwest across the Atlantic, um, eventually arriving at the Brazilian coastline after a few stops at some Atlantic islands. And Darwin had uh, a mixed experience as the Beagle headed down along Brazil's coast. Um, he was fascinated by the rainforest and the jungle. He did a lot of research. Uh, collecting specimens, making notes, and, and presumably always having to, something to chat about over dinner with Fitzroy. Um, however, Darwin, uh, raised as he was under the influence of avowed abolitionists, he abhorred the slavery that he bore witness to in Brazilian towns and cities. 
Um, and unfortunately, of course, Pedro and Isabel, they're a long way away from abolishing it just yet. Episode 286, last week's episode. Get across it. But the Beagle um, continued south along the coast. Darwin took every opportunity he could to go ashore and investigate the plants and the animals and the minerals he found as, as the coastline was being charted by the crew of the Beagle. And, and despite not having much experience as, uh, as a scientific researcher in the field, Darwin did a very good job of collecting and, and labelling and storing the samples that he took. Uh, he rigorously took notes on everything he came across, as, as well as keeping a, a diary along the, uh, along the voyage. However, the poor bugger, he didn't have his sea legs. He suffered mightily from seasickness, but this didn't hold him back. And uh, for a little more than a kid out of university, it, you really have to admit that Darwin did a terrific job when it came to his fieldwork. Now, one of the other things that emerged slowly but surely throughout this, uh, this voyage uh, as, as it continued was Darwin beginning to pull together his own nascent ideas about, again, what was called back then, the transmutation of species, evolution. And one of the things that influenced his thinking um, was his encounters with various indigenous people throughout, uh, not just South America, but as, as we'll see later on other parts of the world as well. This helped him in time to become further and further convinced that evolutionary biology suggested that humans shared a common ancestor. Because, of course, back then, the thinking was that various racial divisions uh, between humans, these were, these were divinely created. These were immutable. These were unchanging. These races were created and developed separately. And that, of course, isn't the case. We know that now. But this idea that Darwin was, was beginning to develop was truly radical, absolutely wild. And it got even more radical than that, right? Because Darwin, in time, would ultimately propose that humans and other animals shared a common ancestor if you went back far enough. Far, far enough. And, and this idea, as correct as it has ultimately been proven to be, was absolutely off the wall back then. It put him at odds with the essentially the rest of the scientific establishment of, of, of his day. But again, we will come to that. And also, we're giving, a blo- we're giving this bloke a lot of credit. He didn't get everything right, right? Um, uh, for, for instance, based on his observations, he, de- <laughs> he declared that all of the southern part of South America, right, the entire bottom half of the South American continent, uh, was devoid of reptiles, which is um, not true. Uh, uh, and he also, unfortunately, as you, as you might expect from a European in the early 19th century, he... Uh, he did not have particularly complimentary things to say about uh, many of the indigenous populations he encountered. As progressive as he was, raised by abolitionists and forward-thinking people, Darwin still was a product of his era and still had some uh, pretty unfortunate views about uh, the uh, the racial superiority and inferiority uh, of, of certain races, as so many Europeans did back then, sadly. Anyway. The Beagle, it rounded the, uh, rounded the southern tip of, of South America and it headed up north now along the west coast, continuing to chart the coastline, of course, while Darwin continued his researches. Now, I don't know where the two-year thing came from, honestly, because even as they headed from the Atlantic through to the Pacific, the, the journey was over its intended length, right? They didn't even make it to the Pacific before two years had passed. So they must have really, really taken their time with this journey, but didn't seem to bother anyone. I don't know. They obviously went on a, on a tight deadline. Uh, because they headed north, slowly but steadily, plenty of time spent on shore. In fact, um, the majority of the time, I believe, from what I could tell, um, the majority of the five years that the journey ended up lasting, only a year and a half of that was actually spent sailing. So Darwin and the rest of the crew spent a lot of time uh, at anchor, a lot of time on shore, and this meant that Darwin had lots of time to explore, do his research, gather samples, and also have a great time hiking, exploring, and at one point, 
uh, experiencing a massive earthquake about halfway up the coast of Chile. Um, this aided him, however, in his research. It actually furthered his geological investigations into the formation of the earth. But uh, as much as I'd like to talk about that as well, honestly, we just we just don't have time to get into that properly as well as evolution and everything else. But suffice to say, uh, Darwin was uh, known as a uh, as a very talented geologist as well as everything else that he did, and and a lot of a lot of his geological uh, insights uh, came about as a result of his his investigations during the the voyage on the Beagle. But again. Despite being a, a famous and well-known geologist in his time, this is not the thing that Darwin is most well-known or most famous for um, because his achievements in the areas of evolutionary biology completely eclipsed everything else. And if we're going to talk about that, right, if we're going to talk about that, there is no more important time in his early years than the time he spent, of course, on the Galapagos Islands. Off the coast of mainland Ecuador, the, Galap the Galapagos Islands are where Darwin famously gained the scientific insight that would, in time, revolutionise our understanding of life and, more specifically, our place as humans on Earth. After travelling more or less all the way up the west coast of the South American continent, the Beagle finally turned to the west and set sail towards the Galapagos Islands, arriving on the 15th of September 1835, coming up on four years into the voyage. And it was while exploring these various islands that Darwin, amongst many other discoveries, made some observations that are most famously associated with his development of the theory of evolution. He took particular notice of the variation in the bird life across the Galapagos Islands, and specifically in the slight differences between otherwise very similar birds, depending on which island they were found on. At first, he noticed how the mockingbirds on these islands were, were all, broadly speaking, very similar to the ones found back on the South American mainland, but they possessed very slight differences, and that these differences were further pronounced from island to island. In other words, the birds differed in consistent ways, if that makes sense, depending on which island you were on. And the same was true of the finches there. This is probably the animal most famously associated with Darwin and the Galapagos Islands, as he later noted, noted how the shape and the size of the finch's beaks would differ from island to island. Now, he, uh, he collected specimens of all of these birds, the, the finches and the mockingbirds and, and plenty of other animals besides. Uh, but there was one animal that he uh, didn't spend all that much time investigating when it came to regional differences, despite having been told by the colonial governor of the Galapagos Islands that you could tell which island the tortoises came from based on the shapes of their shells. Compared to his birds, Darwin didn't pay the Galapagos tortoise too much heed as an object of scientific research. Uh, in the same way that these birds had regional differences depending on which island they were from, so too did the tortoises. But Darwin didn't seem that interested in this aspect of the Galapagos tortoise. He seemed much more interested in their culinary aspects because he very much enjoyed them being served up as his dinner. There's good eating on one of them things, I've heard, apparently, but uh, this wasn't something that made a huge contribution to Darwin's researches other than keeping his belly nice and full. Anyway, Darwin didn't put the whole puzzle together then and there, of course, um, but in time, his observations of how these otherwise identical animals varied from island to island, these observations led him to publish some of the most important scientific research in human history. 
underpinning the revolutionary theory of evolution. The diversity of species he encountered on the Galapagos Islands with their specific regional variations that suggested adaptation to the local environment, this suggested that the forms life took were not set in stone and that organisms changed and adapted and evolved over time. But again, we'll get there. I promise you, we will uh, We will come to all of that properly in due course. Don't you worry. We are still a good while away right now from, uh, from the publication of On the Origin of Species. So let's continue the story. The Beagle finally left the, Gal- the Galapagos Islands on the 20th of October. They'd spent over a month there. No wonder they bloody didn't get the, the trip done and dusted in two years. Um, anyway, finally set off towards Tahiti. They steadily munched their way through the stock of tortoises they'd brought on board with them en route. And after a brief stop off uh, in Tahiti, they continued on to Aotearoa, New Zealand, which I, uh, I hesitate to mention, Darwin didn't seem to think all that much of. Um, he, didn't, he didn't say very nice things about the Māori there, uh, but in fairness, he also didn't say very nice things about the Pakia there either. So uh, he just honestly doesn't seem to have been a fan of the place in general. When the Beagle departed for Australia... Darwin described himself as being glad to leave New Zealand behind. So, I think we've uh, we've sort of already established that this bloke is obviously a yeah, pretty cluey fella. Changed the course of scientific history. A lot of grey matter between the ear holes there, I reckon. But just in case there was any lingering doubt as to how intelligent this bloke actually was, you can see he's made a very, very good decision, hasn't he? Leaving Aotearoa in the rear view, heading over to Australia. A fine choice, mate. Much bloody better over here. You're going to love it, big fella. Let me tell you this. Darwin, he visited New South Wales, spent some time in Sydney, uh, headed south towards Van Diemen's Land. Um, and while, while Darwin's writing was, of course, filled with a lot of the racist nonsense that was so commonplace in his time, he nonetheless was able to, to challenge some of the racist orthodoxy uh, of his day. And uh, this came across in the way that he described some of the encounters he had with Indigenous Australians. He described them, uh, he described them as being... <clears throat> Good-humoured and pleasant, they appeared far from such utterly degraded beings as usually represented. So he's able to make up his mind for himself and not be as dismissive. He's able to be a little more positive uh, about the Indigenous people that he came across. And on top of this, um, after arriving in what is now Tasmania, he had some very critical comments to make about how the uh, the colonial authorities in Australia were treating Indigenous people. So good on him for that. Obviously, this doesn't excuse a lot of the pretty awful views that he held throughout his lifetime about race and supposed racial inferiority and superiority. But at least there was someone back then who was who was able to think for himself uh, at least somewhat rather than just going along with the prevailing attitudes of the day and uh, in doing so present a, a an alternative and perhaps more balanced viewpoint on things like race relations in, uh, in colonial Australia. Anyway, after leaving Van Diemen's land, the Beagle then sailed around the south of Australia over to what is now WA and Perth. And then finally, after spending some time there on the 14th of March, 1836, Darwin departed Australia, presumably after having had the bloody time of his life over here, mate. Australia, greatest place on earth. Get around it, mate. Let's uh, let's actually, let's have a look here. Um, let's have a look through his diary and, and, and see what he has to, had to say about us. Uh, here we go. Yeah, okay, here we go. <clears throat> I do not remember since leaving England having passed a more dull and uninteresting time. Excuse me, mate. What are you talking about, Darwin? That, hang on, that can't be right. No, that that's no. That, let's let's we'll keep going here. What what else did he say? Hang on one second. Here we go. Oh yeah, here we go. Not very inviting. What's it? Hang on. 
covered by thin, scrubby trees, soil sandy and very poor. All right, mate, ca- calm down. What are you doing, buddy, having a go at our trees and our soil? Settle down, mate. What's this? Hang on here. Okay. Oh, he's, he's accusing us all of being obsessed with money. Have a listen to this. The whole population, poor and rich, are bent on acquiring wealth. That's bloody nonsense, mate. I bet he didn't even... Well, hang on. I'll stop there. Wait one second. I'm obviously, obviously, I'm not going to actually bet. I don't want to. I don't want to lose any cash on this. But still, come on, mate. What, what's, what's, what's this? What's this last thing he wrote here? Okay, this is, maybe this is a bit better. Yeah, yeah. Right, no, look at this. All right, here we go. Farewell, Australia. You are too great and ambitious. You are too great and ambitious for affection, yet not enough for respect. I leave your shores without sorrow or regret. All right, yeah, no. You know what? Bugger this bloke. Actually, bugger it. He's, he, Charles Darwin is out here making me do one of the most shameful things an Australian can do, and that is take up common cause with the bloody Kiwis, mate. This bloke didn't know what he was talking about, slagging us both off like he did. He might have been a bloody scientific genius or whatever, but this bloke, he wouldn't know a paradise on earth if he was whacked across the head with it, mate. In any case, look, Joke's on him. Joke's on you, Darwin, old son. There's a whole bloody city named after you over here. Darwin up in the Northern Territory. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Charlie. Too bad you bloody hated it here. Your memory's stuck here forever, you bloody turkey. Anyway, Darwin and the Beagle continued westward. Good riddance to bad rubbish. So they're heading, off the, uh, heading across the Indian Ocean now, um, sailing first to the Keeling Islands. They had exquisite some coral there. And then to Mauritius. Where, of course, Darwin's research has continued. More geology, more zoology is getting stuck in all over the place. And uh, before long, the 31st of May, 1836, they're setting a comparatively blistering pace on the home stretch. Really must have hated Australia if he's wanting to get back to Britain that fast. Um, the Beagle was around the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa, uh, as I say, end of May 1836, arriving in Cape Town. Um, but believe it or not, they actually didn't head straight back to Britain from there. Once again, they went across the Atlantic again to Brazil one last time so Fitzroy could make some final uh, navigational and cartographical measurements. And Darwin didn't mind this, apparently. Oh, he hates Australia, but he bloody loves Brazil. He, uh, he got to kick about in the jungle one more time over there. Uh, so love that. No accounting for taste. Uh, but then finally, in August 1836, at long last, the Beagle turned its nose towards home and arrived back in Britain on the 2nd of October, pulling into harbour in Cornwall. After disembarking the Beagle, Darwin headed home to Shrewsbury to see his family first of all, and um, then headed to Cambridge, where he organised the gigantic collection of specimens that he'd gathered over the last five years. Um, most of these had been sent home earlier aboard other ships that had been bound for Britain, and he had a lot of stuff to get through. However, he wasn't alone in organising it all. Uh, extracts of the letters that he, that he had sent home had been published without his knowledge while he was away, meaning that he was actually something of a scientific celebrity back in Britain. He's now rubbing shoulders with other scientific luminaries of the day like Charles Lyell. Uh, and working alongside up-and-comers like uh, Richard Owen, quite a strange bloke who was famous for coining the term dinosaur. And uh, Darwin would go on to have long-standing relationships with people like Lyle, with people like Owen, other very famous scientists of the time, although these relationships wouldn't always be positive. While Lyle ended up becoming one of Darwin's very best, very closest friends, one of his most vocal supporters, Richard Owen, on the other hand, became one of his loudest opponents in the debates that emerged when Darwin ultimately unveiled his uh, his theory in the years to come. But again, as I've said a thousand times, it feels like we will get to that. 
But it was very good that Darwin's growing reputation preceded his return, because by now he is starting to formulate some extremely radical scientific ideas. Now, he had to keep a lot of plates spinning during this time after his return. He was uh, extremely busy with organising and classifying and presenting his specimen collections. He was writing and presenting papers to scientific societies. He was preparing and editing his notes and journals for publication. And he still somehow found the time to marry his cousin. Yeah. Okay. What's going on there? His actual factual cousin, not his second or third, no once removed business or anything like that, just his aunt and uncle's daughter. And bizarrely, he wasn't the only one of his siblings to do this. His sister Caroline married their cousin Josiah. So Caroline and Charles weren't just sister and brother, but they were also cousins-in-law? Anyway, yes, Darwin, he married his cousin, Emma Wedgwood, who had the same maiden name as his mum. Um, and together they had 10 children. Watch out, Bach, episode 282, get across it. Darwin, he's bloody coming for you, mate. Anyway, on top of all of this work and cousin marrying, Darwin slowly but steadily chipped away at this uh, at this evolution thing, this this transmutation of species thing that was uh, was kicking, kicking around the back of his head. Um, it was a knotty little problem that Darwin never quite put down. It was more of a hobby of his, to be honest. Uh, while he was publishing journals and writing papers and presenting findings, he continued to investigate and, and research his ideas about how species may chop and change and, as we say now, evolve. And this research didn't just involve uh, talking with and working with scientists and learned people of letters. He went and talked to people with hands-on experience of selective breeding, everyone from farmers to pigeon fanciers. And he did this in an attempt to gain an understanding of what went into the way that they deliberately manipulated the generational change of animal species. Learning about things like how farmers pick the best breeding stock from the animals they raise in order to generate iterated change in future generations, um, this influenced Darwin's thinking very strongly. This artificial selection was instrumental in him framing his theory of natural selection. But this strain of his research, as I say, remained something of a hobby. Into the 1840s, Darwin uh, continued to publish reams and reams of scientific work based on his uh, voyage in the Beagle, uh, a lot of it geological, biological, zoological, botanic, all sorts of stuff, right? But he faced another challenge uh, during this period, one that had arisen in the late 1830s and was only getting worse and worse as time wore on and his enormous workload took its toll. Darwin's health steadily worsened to the point that he had to take extended breaks from work just to rest and recover. This poor bloke was running himself ragged. He was burning the candle, not just at both ends, but also in the middle. He was a, um, a famous and a well-regarded scientist as, as a result of his labours, but the cost to his health was significant. Headaches, heart problems, stomach issues, trembling, fainting, vomiting, boils, eczema, and we... We shouldn't really laugh at this, but also excessive uh, ex- ex- excessive flatulence. He, he, was, he was farting away like a brass band, the poor bugger. Darwin was not a well man. And uh, the, the most interesting thing about the illnesses that he underwent was we don't know what they were. Many, many medical scientists have attempted unsuccessfully to diagnose him, but it is a mystery to this day exactly what Darwin suffered from. It was probably a great many different medical ailments and, and disorders, uh, but we just don't know. We don't know what they were. We can guess, of course, but it is difficult to diagnose someone accurately years and years after they have died. 
Incredibly, however, through his persistent illnesses that were obviously only made worse by his huge workload, Darwin still managed to get a lot of research and a lot of publishing done. For instance, he was widely celebrated in scientific circles for his work on, of all things, barnacles. After years of research into them, he won the Royal Society's Royal Medal in 1853, which confirmed him as one of the preeminent biologists of the day. Uh, Parallel to this, uh, his work in geology also entrenched himself in that discipline and that field as well. This bloke, even had it not been for all the the evolutionary biology stuff, this bloke still would have been a a very famous scientist uh, for his contributions in, in other fields. But it is, of course, his revolutionary theory of evolution that means that Charles Darwin is one of the most famous scientists ever to have lived. And it is now time, exalted listener, at long last, to talk about this theory, its publication, and the impact that it had both back then at the time and in the years and decades that followed. By the time we get to the mid-1850s, Darwin's theory on the transmutation of species uh, was still coming into focus. Darwin hadn't published anything formally, but his ideas were beginning to crystallise and he was beginning to uh, put things together in in a more formal and a more structured way within his own mind and also in in the writings, the sort of casual personal writings, the notes he was making. Um, about things like uh, trying to explain the enormous diversity of life on Earth, uh, explaining it through species changing and adapting over time to better suit their environment and their surroundings, rather than you know just having been created that way. This was the crux of Darwin's theory, and I'll tell you this very interestingly: you may not know this. He wasn't he wasn't the only one thinking along these lines at the time. Uh, there was a bloke named Alfred Russell Wallace, who was very much on the same track as Darwin, as he was working uh, off on the other side of the world in Borneo. Um, and Wallace actually uh, was uh, at a point where he was, again, grappling with and, and writing about some of the same ideas that Darwin was having. In 1856, Charles Lyell, the uh, the scientist I mentioned earlier, who, uh, as I also uh, said, was one of Darwin's very best friends, um, he read a short paper written by Wallace and saw that Wallace had some very similar ideas about the transmutation of species, uh, the same sort of ideas that Darwin had. So Lyle, he went to Darwin, he said, mate, have you read this? This Wallace bloke, he's hot in your heels. He's, you know, you've got to beat him to print, essentially. You have to publish something here uh, to achieve precedence, to make sure the world knows that these ideas are yours, that you get there first, right? The, the, Lyle wanted Darwin to be the one who was credited, not Wallace. But Darwin, rather than rush to print with his uh, incompletely formed ideas, right, he instead decided to correspond with Wallace, who honestly doesn't seem to have been much of a glory hound. The two of them exchanged ideas and collaborated most readily, and Wallace actually seemed to encourage Darwin to publish the ideas that they were discussing. It didn't really seem that Wallace was, was in it for the glory or the fame. Which does make me want to mention him in a show like this and acknowledge him him as one of the, uh, I don't know how, how do we describe this guy? One of the co-founders of the theory of evolution. Wallace played a very big part in Darwin uh, developing and publishing his theory. While, while Darwin does rightly get the credit for it because he was the one who who uh, went, the, went the distance in terms of um, writing about publishing, uh, going public with this uh, with this grand theory, uh, Wallace nonetheless played a very important role and isn't someone who we should overlook when telling the story uh, of, of evolutionary biology. Anyway, 
With, uh, with Wallace on the other side of the world in Borneo, Darwin could have very easily scooped him, right? He had the opportunity to completely remove uh, Wallace from the equation by just not acknowledging or making reference to the bloke in his work. But that's not what happened. Wallace and his input was so invaluable to Darwin continuing to develop his theory that in 1858, Darwin and Wallace's ideas on the, on the transmutation of species, evolution essentially, were presented jointly to the Linnaean Society. And I tell you what, you will not believe the response that this presentation got. One of the most important revolutionary scientific theories that the world had ever seen, seeking to explain the existence of such varied species of life across the planet, removing intelligent design and a creator from the ledger, forever changing our understanding of life and the planet on which we live. The presentation was given and people were more or less completely disinterested. Actually, barely anything came of it at all. The presentation was panned by critics, um, but not in a way that drew much attention to it. Um, Rather than being considered outrageous, it was just seen as being a bit boring and kind of irrelevant, which I think is the worst possible outcome, because at least if people had hated it, they would have then gone on and talked about it. I don't know. So it's back to the drawing board, essentially, for Darwin, because he needed now a much more thorough and robust slate of proofs if the scientific community was actually going to sit up and take notice of his theory. And this is the reason why just Darwin, rather than Darwin and Wallace, uh, it's just Darwin who is credited for the theory of evolution, because Wallace, as I say, half a world away, absorbed in his fieldwork, this prevented him from developing and, and publishing these ideas properly. Whereas Darwin, he sat down and spent over a year working tirelessly, dogged by ill health, but encouraged by friends and colleagues, working, working and working on finally putting his ideas together and publishing a a comprehensive, finalised version of the theory that had been kicking about in his head for 25 years now. And the ultimate result of this was, on the 24th of November, 1859, the publication of one of the most important scientific works in the history of humankind, Charles Darwin's magnum opus on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life. So, uh, snappy old title there, Darwin, mate, probably could have left a, you know, some of that on the on the cutting room floor, I reckon, and as a result of the immense length of the title of this work, uh, most people tend to it just tend to just refer to it as on the origin of species, or even just the origin of species, which makes a lot of sense. Anyway, on the origin of species gave a formal introduction to the idea that the diversity of life on Earth is due to branching patterns of evolution from common ancestors, a process that is aided by natural selection. In other words, species change over time, they evolve, as slight differences between members of a given generation of species would give some of them a better chance at success in the struggle for survival. Now, this whole theory is very deep and extremely complex, if you're going to get into it properly, but on the surface, it can be summed up pretty simply Um, And we can do this by using the birds that Darwin encountered in the Galapagos Islands as an example. 
Over a million years ago, a species of finch settled on the various Galapagos Islands. Um, and at this stage, over a million years ago, all of these, these finches, they would have been identical as they settled down on their respective islands. Uh, all of them, obviously, a member of the same species, they would have looked the same. But as the years and the generations passed, these finches slowly but surely changed. They adapted to the local conditions of their specific islands based on, principally, what food was available to them locally. Obviously, in any given ecological system, food stocks are necessarily limited. And so any species that is able to gain some kind of an advantage when it comes to um, accessing and exploiting these food stocks is going to have more success in the struggle for survival. They're more likely to make sure that their bellies are fed, which means that they're more likely to not die and therefore more likely to breed and pass on the characteristics that have, in many cases, given them the advantage that, that allowed them better access to these food stocks, right? So this is uh, very put in very simple terms, um, the way that, uh, that evolution can impact and, and change the way that a species looks and, and operates and behaves. But to bring it back specifically to these birds, right, the finches on the Galapagos Islands, over the generations, some finches on some of the islands developed long, sharp beaks. And this was because they needed to punch holes in and eat cacti and prickly pears because that's the food that was available to them on their specific islands. Whereas others on different islands developed shorter, blunt beaks so as to chomp up large seeds and bits of fruit. Again, because that's the food that was available to them. So in other words, these birds evolved. Birds that happened to hatch with slightly longer beaks on the cactus island had a slightly better chance of accessing food and therefore a slightly better chance to survive and pass on their genetic material to their offspring. So their offspring would then have a slightly higher chance to inherit this longer beak, which would give them the same slightly better chance to eat, survive, this, this evolutionary advantage, so on and so forth, repeated over countless successive generations until you end up with this subspecies of finch that has a great big long beak, while the ones on the next island over with no cactuses, they've got short, wide beaks because they had a different food source to adapt to. This is natural selection at work. A species will adapt to its environment naturally to, over the generations, produce specimens with the best chance of ongoing survival. Now, here's the hard part when it comes to the theory of evolution. Here's the part that I think we as humans have a bit of trouble, um, we have a bit of trouble sort of wrapping our head around this aspect of the concept. It's not hard to wrap your head around the idea of the of the survival of the fittest. Um, it's not hard to, to understand how if there is a, a, a member of a species that has a certain genetic evolutionary advantage when it comes to the struggle of survival, um, that that trait, that advantage being passed down from generation to generation will ultimately result in this trait being, being perpetuated and, and becoming more and more commonplace as the species that have this trait are more likely to survive and, and pass on their genetic material. That's easy to understand. The mistake that we often make as humans when, uh, when thinking about learning about the theory of evolution, the way that evolution works, um, the part that we often, we often really just fail to understand is that evolution is not an active 
and deliberate process. We have an unfortunate habit of trying to assign active choice to evolution, thinking that it's deliberate, that it's that it's trying to achieve something. It's not. It's essentially a lottery. It's a lottery that's played over and over and over and over again across countless generations with results that will, in time, favour those species best suited to their environment. Let's think about it from a different perspective. It's very easy to understand artificial selection, right? Uh, You've got a cat breeder, a cat breeder looking to produce a cat with the finest coat you've ever seen. This cat breeder will artificially select, they will go and actively, deliberately select a male and a female with fine coats of their own, and they will have these cats breed in order to maximise the chance of their offspring having even finer coats. Now there, there's an active choice. We understand that. It's not, a, it's not an accident. This cat breeder is making a deliberate choice that results in a certain, a certain outcome from, from parent to child. However, giraffes aren't trying to grow long necks. It just so happens that their environment rewarded those members of the species who happened to have longer necks than others. They therefore had better access to the necessarily limited food stocks we talked about before, and therefore a better chance to breed and to produce offspring. Offspring that would, of course, more likely than not, have similarly long necks. And that's not to say that all the short-necked giraffes just died then and there. It's just that they're less suited to their environment. And in the ongoing generational struggle for survival, they are therefore less likely to survive. And, as a result, less likely to reproduce. Evolution is a very slow and very gradual process. It's not acting with intent. It's not trying to do anything. Evolution just explains why and how different species end up becoming so different from one another. It's not a process that is saying, oh, here's this giraffe. Look at this bloody pitifully short neck. Let's do something about that. It just so happened that giraffes that were born with slightly longer necks had a slightly better chance of survival, a slightly better chance to reproduce. And if you multiply this across, you know, thousands and thousands of different members of any given species and thousands and thousands of generations, these advantageous traits will emerge, they will flourish, and they will become extremely prevalent to the point that they more or less define a species in its given ecosystem and environment. So this is the explanation given by Darwin's theory of evolution as laid out uh, in On the Origin of Species. This is the explanation as to why there is such a huge diversity of life. It explains why tigers have stripes. It explains why squid have such huge eyes. These animals, these species, they adapted to their surroundings. They adapted to their environment so they could succeed and flourish. And by that, I mean they could just continue to survive. That is the measure of success in evolutionary biology, the fact that you just make it, that you continue to survive. The fact that you didn't go extinct is, in, uh, in terms of evolutionary biology, that is a success. However, Darwin's theory didn't just stop at, at attempting to explain why species are the way that they are here and now. It went a lot further than this in attempting to explain as well how they got to this point. And this is a really important aspect of the theory of evolution. And again, one that we have a little bit of trouble getting our heads around properly. The idea that it is not a finishable process. Evolution is dynamic and ever-changing, and it's not racing towards a finish line. 
we might look at an animal like a tiger or a squid or or even ourselves, a human, and say, oh, okay, well, this is, you know, this is the this is our apex. This is our evolutionary apex. We got to the finish line. This is us finished. No, this is not the case whatsoever. And the best way to explain this is to look at the branching evolution patterns that originate from common ancestors. It's no secret these days we know that animals, plants, all sorts of life forms have evolved from common ancestors. And perhaps the best way that we can explore this idea is by looking at us as as humans, right? If we go back far enough, right, if we go back 66 million years ago or so to the uh, to the extinction of the dinosaurs, our ancestors weren't bipedal. They weren't humans that were driving around in cars with no floors or watching TVs hewn out of rocks. No, our ancestors back then were these weird little rat-like creatures, ancient mammals that were able to adapt and therefore survive, changing as their environment changed. The extinction of the dinosaurs gave mammals a chance to thrive in the newly emptied post-extinction environment. And so they spread and they grew and they changed. They developed new advantages in this new environment. And after having been given enough time, these weird little rat things evolved, believe it or not, into you and me. But of course, they stopped at all sorts of different stations along the way as their circumstances required. And presuming we are able to stick around long enough and not send ourselves into extinction, a capacity that we certainly have these days, we as a species will continue to evolve and adapt and change given what our specific environment re- environments require. And again, this is the really important part that you that you need to take away from this. This isn't an active process. We are the result of millions and millions of years of, for want of a better term, survivorship bias. Those those little rat things, right, millions and millions of years ago, they weren't in their burrows thinking to themselves, oh geez, buddy hell, I'd love opposable thumbs. That'd be great. That'd be fantastic. Then I could then I could operate electronic devices and listen to my favorite tin pot history podcast. No. That isn't what those weird rat things were trying to do. They weren't trying to do anything other than survive. But there was, over time, a an evolutionary, a biological imperative to adapt, to change, to evolve in order to facilitate that ongoing survival. So that is evolution, more or less. Uh, I did my best. Apologies to any evolutionary biologists who are listening for uh, any shortcomings in that explanation. You can uh, you can certainly let me know how I did. I'd, I'd love to hear feedback. But to bring this back to the story of Darwin and his book, um, for all the legendary importance in the history of science that the uh, that on the origin of species has, there are very two interesting things that it lacked. Um, firstly, it almost completely lacked the word evolution. The word evolved only appears in it once, one time, because again, as we've sort of touched upon, uh, the term wasn't really used in this context back then. Um, people like Darwin used terms like uh, transmutation of species. So not a hugely important little fact, but an interesting one nonetheless, despite the fact that evolution is inexorably tied to Darwin and, and his legacy, he himself never really used that term all that much. But far more importantly, far more importantly, when it comes to what On the Origin of Species was lacking, 
It lacked any sort of specific explanation as to how humans had come about as a species. While people were ready to read about and accept new theories as to how animals and plants and whatever else originated and developed, Darwin fell short of affirming that his theory of evolution applied to humans as well. Now, this is very interesting to think about, um, and it reminds me of, uh, of how I've mentioned a couple of times how I used to be a primary school teacher, and I've had a few instances in the classroom where I have been the one to break the news for the first time to a child that humans are, in fact, animals. Now, we're animals who benefit from all the advantages of things like opposable thumbs and tinpot history podcasts, but as I'm sure you know, we are still animals all the same. Now, in my, my experience, this invariably completely shocks kids when they find out for the first time. I'm an animal, they say. But like learning that the sun is actually a star, it is something that we kind of just get our heads around eventually. It's something we internalize and accept. And I would say most listeners listening to this show today have an understanding that they are Animals, they are mammals, just like so many other species of life on Earth. If this is news to you, um, yeah, uh, sorry about that. Uh, I guess I should have <laughs> should have got you to sit down first, so the shock didn't completely overwhelm you. But uh, yeah, certainly not the first time that I've broken news to broken that news to people that uh, that, that we are indeed uh, we are indeed animals. Anyway, people in Darwin's time, um, they were much less ready to accept the idea that uh, that we are animals, that nothing separates us from the beasts in the field. And so Darwin, he trod very, very lightly indeed when addressing this side of his theory. Darwin decided that discretion was the better part of valour, and in The Origin of Species, he just didn't really talk about this issue all that much. Now, the implication was clear. People were certainly able to connect the dots for themselves, but Darwin himself I don't know, seems to have wanted to avoid triggering huge controversial theological debate about the origin of humankind and the higher forces that so many people believe are responsible for our, our existence. And uh, while the book was uh, certainly very, very successful uh, in many respects, it sold far more copies than anyone expected. It gained widespread scientific attention and, and support in, in many cases. And, and it also succeeded in uh, gaining the interest of many people who weren't all that scientific. It was, uh, it was something that could be read and understood by, by the layperson. There was one area in which it completely failed, and that was it failed to avoid the debate and controversy that Darwin was perhaps hoping to dodge. Darwin, who was, was so unwell after On the Origin of Species was published that he couldn't go out in public to defend his theory, he was excoriated by his critics who lambasted his theory and its implications, ridiculing ideas like, uh, like the, 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 the thought that, that humans could have evolved from apes. Um, the more theologically minded completely opposed the implications of Darwin's proposals. They flew in the face of long-established religious dogma from, from the age of the earth to the idea that humans were divinely created. However, the more liberally inclined members of the devout, they actually sought a middle ground. Some even applauded Darwin for giving God a new name. Some scientists sought to cast evolution as an active and deliberate process, a mistake that many humans still make today, um, that was being undertaken by a divine creator, for instance. So 
The debate surrounding On the Origin of Species wasn't as black and white as you might think. There were plenty of, uh, of deeply religious people who came out in support of this work and, and saw it as something that strengthened the argument for the existence of God. It was evolution that, uh, that, that a higher power might use to, to manage and influence life that had been created on Earth. But uh, by the same token, there were many people who came out in complete opposition to uh, Darwin's theory, and there were those who came out in, in, in full-throated support of it as well. This, uh, this publication generated an enormous amount of scientific controversy, and into the 1860s, rancorous debates were commonplace between Darwin's supporters, the so-called Darwinists, and those who opposed his ideas. Darwinists bolstered the evidence put forth by On the Origin of Species. Um, Darwin's friend Thomas Huxley published a paper that demonstrated how, anatomically speaking, humans are apes, while naturalist Henry Walter Bates, a, a colleague of Alfred Russell Wallace, the bloke from Borneo, um, he piled on further evidence for natural selection based on his findings during his voyages across the world. So there were plenty of people who came out in support of Darwin and were able to uh, to strengthen and uh, improve the case that he made in On the Origin of Species, even while Darwin himself perhaps shied away a little bit from um, being as, uh, as far-reaching with the implications of his theory as, uh, as he should have been. And uh, as controversial as it was, On the Origin of Species was an immediate and unprecedented success. As I, as I sort of alluded to before, it was written in language that the layperson could understand. It encouraged ordinary people to take more of an active interest in science. And they did. People flocked to debates and lectures. Darwin became a famous figure in what I, what I suppose you could call popular culture back then, both lauded and ridiculed, depending on which side of the fence you're on. While, of course, he did have his detractors, he still does even today. Darwinism and the theory of evolution have extremely vocal and, of course, extremely incorrect op opponents. He was, nonetheless, strongly supported and celebrated by most within the scientific community. And nowhere was this more obvious than when he was awarded with the Royal Society's highest honour in 1864, the Copley Medal. But he still wasn't finished. Even after publishing On the Origin of Species, even with his awful health, Darwin continued his work. Debate raged on over his theory, but as time passed, more and more people came to accept the idea of evolution, and what was principally debated uh, was natural selection, as opposed to intelligent design, I suppose, or a creator who was guiding the hand of evolution as an active process, which again, it's easier, as to th easier for us to think about it being, um, because... Really, when it comes down to it, I've talked a little bit about how this is the hard part for us to grapple with when it comes to evolution, the idea that it isn't active or deliberate. But I think the reason that we want to see it as such is because this is how we approach this sort of thing as a species. This is what we do as humans. We, we experiment, we meddle, we improve, we try new things. But again, evolution isn't trying to do anything. And that's counterintuitive at the best of time, never, never, mind when, never mind when it's overthrowing thousands of years of religious dogma. So no wonder people were, uh, were, were vociferously arguing in opposition to the, uh, the ideas that Darwin was putting forth. They just didn't really make sense to, to people intuitively. But all the same, despite all these opponents, despite the fact that, uh, that there were those and still are those who stand in opposition to Darwin's theories, uh, he continued his work. In 1871, he finally took the plunge and committed himself fully and wholeheartedly to his theory and its application to humans. 
While he had been hesitant to at first say that humans evolved, just as other animals did, his 1871 work The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex nailed his colours to the mast. The Descent of Man made it clear that evolutionary theory does indeed apply to humans just as well as it does to other species, um, and it also introduced the idea of sexual selection, which, which works alongside natural selection as a, uh, as, as a force within the process of evolution. Sexual selection, as you may be aware, is the idea that within species, one sex, usually females, uh, will select mates with which to breed, usually males, uh, based on characteristics that are more likely to give their offspring the best chance at survival. Now, we're not going to get into this too much. Um, it's uh, it's something that, you know, you can find out more about pretty pretty readily. Just go and watch a nature doc- documentary. It's uh, very, very prominently featured in, uh, in many of them, uh, sexual selection. Um, it's why animals uh, often exhibit such, um, uh, such, such striking sexual dimorphism, right? Male birds with colourful, extravagant plumage compared to uh, plain or dull-coloured female birds, or, or male elk and, and moose with these great big antlers, that sort of thing. Sexual, sexual selection is a very big part of evolutionary biology. It's a very big reason um, behind a lot of uh, the appearances and, and behaviours of different species around the world. Um, and it was something that, uh, that again, Darwin put forth as, uh, as a contributory factor within, within the framework of evolution. But the, the descent of man didn't stop there. It also put forth the idea that various human races were also the product of evolution and that these races were not, as many people wanted to believe, created separately from one another. Now, this is obviously for the time a, uh, a, a very forward-thinking and quite confrontational and challenging view to be put f- to put forth. Right? This isn't something that uh, the the heady racism of the uh, of the nineteenth century was uh, was ready to uh, to to come to terms with. However, I don't want to give Darwin too much credit in putting this theory forth because while it certainly was a lot more scientifically valid than uh, than the, the the prevailing scientific thought at the time. Darwin didn't quit while he was ahead. He did make these uh, observations about the origin of, uh, of, of various racial differences within humans and, and attributing them to forces like, uh, like evolution. But he then went on to classify different human races into a hierarchy. So again, he... Uh, he really didn't get everything right, I'm afraid. He might have been an, an, an avowed abolitionist and he might have been a lot more forward-thinking than many of his time. But Darwin still wasn't altogether free from the poisonous racism of the 19th century as he attempted to stratify and, uh, and organise human races into different levels of supposed superiority and inferiority. So, again, something that doesn't reflect super well on, uh, on this bloke's legacy. In any case, The Descent of Man, it, uh, it wasn't as controversial as On the Origin of Species was. By now, the idea that humans were the products of evolution wasn't a new or a radical theory, um, even if it wasn't one that everyone agreed upon. Um, and you might have thought that the ideas put forth by The Descent of Man should have been and would have been more controversial, given that Darwin was finally coming out and explicitly saying humans weren't intelligently designed and instead evolved like everything else. But by now, a decade's worth of debates had had normalised many of these ideas. So this, this new publication of his, The Descent of Man, this was Darwin refining and developing his existing theory rather than 
re-upsetting the apple cart. And as important as The Descent of Man is, it didn't come close to having the revolutionary impact on scientific thought that On the Origin of Species did as it laid bare a fundamental truth about life on this planet. And now, with these two monumentally important books out in the world for all to read and to think about, what was next for Darwin? What great labour would he commit himself to now? What would be his next groundbreaking piece of work? Well, in the last years of his life, Darwin worked away as tirelessly as ever, ill health notwithstanding, uh, focusing his attention and significant thinking power to the study of earthworms. Worms had been a passion of Darwin's for much of his career, it seems. Uh, This often gets overlooked by the whole changing the world of science forever thing. Um, And uh, his passion for worms ultimately culminated in his 1881 masterwork, The Formation of Vegetable Mould Through the Action of Worms. Now, it's funny to talk about this in, uh, in these terms and think about how Charles Darwin, the, 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 the father of evolutionary theory, one of the world's most important and influential scientific figures, then went and spent 10 years like looking at worms in a garden. But he did. And I will say this, he, this work was not of equal importance, but it still was a very important work in, uh, in, in the scientific oeuvre. Um, it shed light on the vital importance of earthworms to ecological systems all around the world, but yeah, still... Not quite as flashy as uh, some of his other public, uh, publications. In fact, none of Darwin's later works were. Um, he wrote uh, a book called The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication, The Movements and Habits of Climbing Plants. He wrote The Effects of Cross and Self-Fertilization in the Vegetable Kingdom. But as, you know, seemingly inconsequential as these works are in, con- in, in comparison to something like On the Origin of Species, They nonetheless all were related to or touched upon these other ideas that he had about evolution. They involved experiments across generations of plants, demonstrating the way that selective forces could influence uh, change between generations. But in terms of actual proper evolutionary theory, um, in 1872, Darwin published The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, and this talked about evolutionary psychology in humans and its links with animal psychology. And by now, these ideas were some amongst many on the topic, and again, they weren't seen as hugely radical or inflammatory, because evolution was the question of the age. And throughout the final decades of Darwin's life, scientists of all kinds poured their time and their energy into examining, researching, testing, improving, or conversely, rubbishing, this theory that he had brought to light. And this was a process that that went on for a very long time, and in many ways is still ongoing today. From the 1940s, it became essentially impossible to argue against Darwin's theory on scientific grounds, at least, due to the overwhelming body of evidence that supports it. Um, Scientists had wrestled with these questions for almost 100 years, uh, spurred on by... uh, by Darwin's theory as it was published in the 1860s. Largely speaking, the big questions of evolutionary biology, natural selection, heredity, and and popul- population ge- genetics, they've, they've been answered. Um, and as I say, it can't really put a legitimate scientific opposition up against them these days. But of course, there's always more work to be done. 
Darwin would be the first person to tell you that. Um, and as much as these issues are settled, um, as much as for the past 80 years there has been no mainstream scientifically supported opposition to Darwin's theory of evolution, we still, to this very day, continue to work to deepen our understanding of evolution, of the way that, that species adapt and change and evolve over time. And all of this work, all of this inquiry, all of this investigation, all of these understandings comes back to the life and the work of Charles Darwin. Darwin died on the 19th of April 1882 when his poor health worsened further and resulted in his death from heart failure at the age of 73. But such was the legacy of this monumentally important scientist and thinker that he was buried in Westminster Abbey, the resting place of British monarchs, next to another of history's most important scientists and thinkers, Sir Isaac Newton. Episode 216, get across it. And Darwin's ongoing legacy is so colossal, it is so significant, it is a foundational aspect of modern science, but also one that I think it's fair to say we take for granted. I think most people can, in simple terms, understand evolution. I certainly was able to, so I don't know what your excuse is. Um, And this is, again, something that there isn't really any widespread mainstream opposition to. It's something that most people accept and understand as being part of the way that the world works. There are, of course, wackos who bang on about a young earth and creationism and whatever else, but really there is no legitimate mainstream opposition to the completely revolutionary ideas that Darwin unveiled to the world back in the mid-19th century. And these ideas have gone on to change scientific thinking and change our understanding of our place on this planet like few have ever done before or since making Darwin one of the true luminaries of the history of science. In the words of the endlessly gracious Alfred Russell Wallace, the scientist whose ideas ran in parallel to Darwin's, Darwin wrought a greater revolution in human thought within a quarter of a century than any man of our time or perhaps any time. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Charles Darwin. Uh, I'm very glad to have finally gotten around to doing it, uh, although I think I will be doing my very best to make sure that this is the uh, the last jumbo-sized episode that I do for a while because, hoo boy, it takes a long time to put these ones together. All the same, the feedback has been very positive. I've had people get in touch telling me that they do like these longer episodes, so uh, you're welcome. It's just I don't know how, uh, how sustainable they are because... Uh, yeah, it takes uh, takes a long, long time to put them together. Anyway, certainly hope you've enjoyed this episode of Half Ass History, and I hope you are looking forward to uh, next week when we begin the new uh, sub series of um, uh, of Half Ass History Monuments. It's kicking off next week. I talked about it a little bit last week. If you didn't get across that, go back and listen to the uh, the outro. Oh, there's the whole thing. It's a pretty good episode last week. Uh, but in the outro, I talk about uh, the new episode that's come, uh, the new episodes that will be coming out every week. Monuments: a, a brief overview of 52 of the most famous and well-known monuments from uh, around the world throughout history starting with Stonehenge next week. And uh, I hope Monuments is something that you're able to uh, incorporate uh, very happily into your your weekly podcast rhythms and routines. I hope it's something that you enjoy. I'm certainly looking forward to uh, 
uh, to uh, putting these episodes out there. So hope you enjoy getting across them as well. Anyway, I'm uh, going to close out the show, of course, this week, uh, as we do every week with all the boring housekeeping stuff, halfhousehistory.net. Use the contact form there to get in touch with the show. Thank you so much to all the people who have been writing in. Uh, had a lot of very positive feedback. Well, it's not, not really feedback yet. Uh, I guess positive anticipation about uh, monuments. Uh, so uh, I'm glad people are looking forward to it. I, uh, As I said, I am as well. Uh, but I appreciate the feedback that people have been uh, sending in addition to the topic suggestions. Keep them coming. Don't need them for monuments. I have had some people send in the, uh, the monuments that uh, they would like to hear covered. Uh, every single one that has been sent in so far was already on the list. I don't think I'm going to miss any uh, any of the major ones. Getting to 52 was actually a little bit more of a challenge than I thought it would be. Um, anyway, uh, if you want to support the show, of course, you can in a couple of different ways. Patreon.com slash history. Um, it's there that you can gain access to ad-free listening, uncut episodes, show notes, uh, early access, all sorts of other stuff, exclusive merch. Uh, and merch available for everyone, of course, at uh, TeePublic. If you head over to the website and click the merch button uh, in the menu there, that'll hit you, that'll take you straight through to the merch shop, so you can grab whatever your uh, whatever your heart desires over there. Um, and of course, the biggest favour you can do for me, if you're wanting to uh, wanting to uh, support the show, is just tell people about it. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Um, if there is uh, someone who is interested in 19th century science, someone who wants to learn about one of the legendarily famous scientists that uh, that uh, humanity has produced over the years, not just Darwin. We talked about Newton, Curie. We talked about – I'll get to Einstein eventually. We'll get there. But there's lots and lots of history of science for people to enjoy. So if there is a scientifically, person, a scientifically minded person in your life at the moment, uh, let them know. Tell them about uh, the show and, and maybe they'll enjoy learning a thing or two. Or – if they already know everything about these people, you, they can they can listen to the episodes and send in emails correcting me on all the things I got wrong. It's a win-win no matter how you slice it. Anyway, going to close out the show, of course, this week, as we do every week, with a question posed on Reddit. This one is to do with, of course, evolution. It is posed by mutant underscore llama one, who asks, It has been hundreds of years. Why hasn't Machu Picchu evolved into Machu Pikachu yet? <laughs> <laughs>